they're off. Uh, good morning. It's good seeing everyone uh, here. Uh, as you may, some of you may be aware, last week we kind of started looking at uh, the book of Philippians. Uh, and I'm going to be doing a bit of a series over the next couple of weeks. Kind of my, one of my hopes for this is to explore a bit of what uh, is in this letter to the church in Philippi uh, and what Paul has to say in that. But I also want to spend some time, uh, I guess, introducing myself and letting you know some of my story as part of uh, what I'm be doing. So I'll be doing that a bit today. But uh, in today's passage, a very famous passage, and it's got, it's got a real, uh, one of those like life slogans. And it's made me think about sort of life slogans or slogans people would like to live their life by. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'd love to hear from you in a moment, but uh, I'll tell you one that uh, when I was working in the tourism industry, one of my, um, one of my colleagues uh, used to say uh, quite often, uh, and his slogan that he sought to live by was, if it's a dog-eat-dog world, be a wolf. Yeah, that, that was, yep, yep. so that was his slogan. Uh, does anyone else know any other slogans that people uh, live by? Anyone else think of anything? Kerry, this one's for you. You haven't called out once during one of my sermons yet, so I thought I'd need a, a rhetorical question that would allow you. What? God helps those. Right, Okay. I think I got that one. Yep. So, do, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yep. No. Great. Oh, right. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's good. Yeah. Another one. Any else? Yeah. Neil. It's true. I have a good one that uh, that my kids hate. Which, if we're, they're, 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 we're playing a game of cards or something and they're taking their time, it's one that I got from my uncle and it's uh, Quick Game's a Fast Game. Yeah. 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 Such is life. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, what's the point of cake then? Uh, <laughs> do you know, actually, I always I found that, <laughs> this is something about myself. I found that, that saying irritating, so I had to look up where the origins of that came from, because uh, I was like, what's the point of cake if you can't eat it? Uh, the idea of it is actually you can't have your cake and have eaten it as well. So that's actually the origin of the saying, which makes much more sense, uh, but we just shorten it to kind of your cake and eat it too. Uh, anyone think of another one? I can think of, a, I think of a very famous one. Just do it. Yeah. YOLO, yep, yep. Yeah, nah. Nah, yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> I don't know if they're life mottos, but uh, they're definitely <laughs> slogans you hear around. Uh, but it's interesting, because some of these uh, reveal a bit of uh, how, how you view success or how you frame your world in terms of what you view as successful or having achieved uh, what you would like um, and how you, yeah, how you view that. Uh, in today's passage, Paul, in Philippians uh, 1, 12 to 26, is going to get through uh, a bit of some of his trials uh, and how he frames his life. Uh, so it's on the screen behind me. I'm going to read it out to us this morning. This is uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Uh, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I, uh, if, I am, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to p- depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convince this. I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. So, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. And he, they're clearly being concerned about him. I went through a couple of weeks ago when I did Philippians 1, the relationship between uh, Paul and this church. We can see that actually Paul spent a lot of time uh, with these people. He's kind of walked uh, some of the journey with them uh, for a number of years at one point. Um, and so he's got this intimate relationship with this church. Uh, and they would have been concerned for him. They would have been concerned about their friend, their brother, Paul, because they would have heard some potentially troubling, concerning things that may have caused them to be discouraged or dismayed in their own faiths. Uh, And Paul wants to write to them to address some of the things that they've heard, to actually confirm the things that they've heard, and some uh, some of them are true, but also to help them understand and to frame the things that have happened and are continuing to happen to him, and also to look forward to what will happen or could happen. Uh, And so in verse 12, he begins by saying, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that it was what has happened to me is actually served to advance the gospel. Which begs the question, what's happened to Paul? Now, this will depend on where Paul is writing this letter from, because a lot happens to Paul during his life. uh, And a lot of it's pretty tough stuff. You can read about it in the book of Acts. If you want to go through that, you can kind of, uh, the second half, it starts to become very much about Paul's journeys and following kind of where he heads and how he goes to new cities and locations to proclaim Christ, to strengthen the church uh, and encourage Christians. Uh, But, uh, so it's hard to know, but I think at a minimum, we would be able to say that since his conversion to Christianity... Paul has been whipped, he's been flogged, 
He's been stoned to the point where they thought he was dead. He's been imprisoned multiple times. Uh, in fact, it seems that he's writing this letter from prison. Verse 13 talks about the fact that he's in chain, in chains and also all of the, um, the palace guards. So it could actually be that he's in prison in Rome. That's one of the places where he ends kind of, uh, well, as far as we know, kind of he ends up in prison in Rome. Uh, one of the commentaries I was reading in preparation for today, I like to, to do a bit of research to find out some things. Uh, one of the commentaries by a guy called Alec Motya, he says this about Paul's experience with the Roman legal system and particularly kind of being in their presence. He says, uh, Paul's whole case was beset by a mockery of justice for though right was on his side, he could not secure a hearing. He was made subject of unjust and unprovoked insult and shame, malicious misrepresentation and deadly plot. He was kept imprisoned owing to officials craving popularity, money, or because of an over-punctuous facade of legalism. Yeah. Over-punctilious. Assume it's like just uh, overly rigorous. So like very kind of, they love their legalism. And it was the idea that they are following the, the letter of the law even if it doesn't make sense, um, and even if it's clear that it shouldn't be applied such a rigorous way, they're like, oh, but the law says. And so it's this facade, this kind of uh, idea of, I'm doing the right thing, even though they're clearly not. No worries. Uh, the deceit of malpractice uh, and vilification that surrounds him were past belief. Yet he looks back and asserts that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. To Paul, success is not about personal happiness or how easy or enjoyable his life was. Success to Paul, he has a different way of framing his life. Success is about how much Christ is glorified. Through Paul's suffering, the gospel has reached more people. So it's a success. Through Paul's suffering, others have been able to see God's power as Paul has been delivered from one disaster after another. Success. Through Paul's suffering, Paul himself has learnt to depend solely on God. Success. The way he frames his world, the way he looks at things, is not by what's easy for him, not by what makes him happy, but by how his life can glorify and further God and his kingdom. So as he looks back on his situation, everything that has happened to him, and as he considers even the situation that he's in at that moment and all the things that are happening that aren't necessarily ideal in that He's able to look at them and make an incredible statement in verse 21 when he says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So certain of his eternal destination, 
understanding the glory that awaits him on the other side of death, that he knows that if he dies, it'll be gain for him. He even goes on later to say he desires that which will be better by far for him. So certain is he that nothing can take that from him. And that is what awaits him. He eagerly desires death because he knows he gets to be with God in his kingdom, in his glory. But as he lives, waiting for that moment, he will dedicate his life to Christ and serving his people. And he goes, well, I'm not dead yet, so I can get busy helping you. I can get busy serving you. I'm going to keep doing this because this is what God has given me to do at this time. It's the way he frames his life. Uh, and this is something that I actually personally strive as a guiding principle for my life. But this actually hasn't always been true for me. Uh, I haven't actually always been a Christian. Uh, I grew up in a, a non-Christian household. Uh, as a matter of fact, both my parents uh, still uh, are unbelievers. Uh, they have two grown children who have both gone into vocational ministry. So I think sometimes they scratch their head and go, what, what do we do wrong there? That's, that's weird. Um, but definitely uh, in my household, uh, things like good morals uh, and being kind were upheld, uh, lifted up. I, I kind of think about my parents, the way they frame the world on their, their worldview. It's very much a pursue what makes you happy. If something makes you happy, you should pursue that because that's going to bring you joy. Uh, and that's what I did when I was younger. I pursued what I thought was going to make me happy. Uh, and that was when I was younger. Uh, it was sport. Uh, I loved sport and I was, I was, I was decent at it. Uh, when I was in primary school, uh, I actually competed at the New South Wales State Level uh, Athletics Carnival. Twice. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's impressive. Uh, what discipline? Yep. The 800 metres. Yeah. Uh, so that middle distance kind of running, a bit of endurance. I wasn't great at sprinting, but make it long enough so the sprinters get tired. Whew. Uh, I was there. Uh, I even ended up going to uh, a selective high school for high school, not because of it wasn't a selective high school for intelligence. Uh, it was a selective high school for sport. So I went to a sports high school. Uh, and so part of a, a sports high school is that twice a week, rather than going to a normal class, so Tuesday mornings, I would start early and I'd miss the first session of school and I would be training that whole time. Uh, and then on Thursday afternoon, I would end at lunchtime and I'd go to training or then go to about 4 p.m. And so as part of my schooling, they built in actually sports training as part of what I was doing. And so I pursued that because that's what I love doing. It seemed to make me happy. Uh, I had to travel a fair way to get to this school. It wasn't uh, a local school for me. It was about uh, 45 minutes an hour from where I lived. Uh, public transport to this school wasn't great uh, and no one lived near me that went to school with me. Uh, so there's a few things I had to sacrifice to be able to go to this school, uh, but it was what was making me happy and so I was going to pursue it. Uh, the problem of a sports high school, as I learnt when I went, is that everyone was good at sport 
Uh, and so I went from being like the best in my school at sport to being mediocre at best. Uh, and I didn't quite know how to handle that. That was kind of identity shaking for my 12, 13 year old self going, this is what I thought was going to make me happy. This is what I thought I was going to pursue. Uh, and so in my 13 year old brain's logic, and perhaps this is also going to reveal a bit of my personality, I, I found a solution. I took up a sport that no one else did. That way I could excel at the sport that no one else did. So in about year eight, uh, I started my career as a professional race walker. Uh, I, I, I can clearly remember some of the feedback uh, that my peers gave me as I competed in race walking. Uh, I think one of them said something along the lines of that I looked like uh, I had forcibly inserted a root veg vegetable into an orifice that wouldn't ordinarily, ordinarily have things forced into it. <laughs> they might not have used those terminologies, but that was the essence of what they were trying to express to me. Uh, you can imagine that did wonders for my popularity, soared, and my sense of self-worth. As a 13-year-old, you definitely want to put yourself out uh, in that sort of way. Uh, and so I, I actually became uh, a, bit of a bit of a social reject, a bit of an, and it was isolated. So I'd been traveling so far to get to this school, which is going to supposed to make me happy because I've been pursuing what made me happy. That had been shaken and taken from me. And then I then pursued something that made it even more difficult to make connections and make friends. And so I ended up just going to school, coming home, uh, and I would sit at home and each day I probably end up watching in between four to six hours of TV a day. Uh, so my life was not like overly fantastic. Uh, I wouldn't have said I was particularly happy. I'd say pursuing what made me happy had not worked out particularly well for me. Uh, and I remember it was about a similar sort of time uh, that I noticed my older brother, uh, his life was a little bit different to me. And my brother's always been a little bit different to me. Uh, he went to a selective high school for intelligence uh, and he is very bright. Uh, and I remember kind of seeing him and he was going out and he was hanging out with lots of friends. Uh, and I kind of asked him one time, I said, like, wh where are you going? Uh, and being my brother and being our relationship uh, between siblings, he kind of just grunted at me, youth group. I said, oh, youth group. That sounds interesting. Maybe, maybe I might like to go to a youth group. I mean, obviously not his, Nothing worse than being known as Chris's little brother. Uh, and so maybe I could find a different youth group and I could go along to a different youth group. And so I did. There was a, a church nearby where I lived and they had something on Friday nights. And so in year eight, uh, I, I turned up. Uh, I knew no one. 
Uh, no one had invited me. I had seen what time the thing was on. And so I just, I went. Uh, and I remember they kind of had these set of stairs outside the church. You had to walk down and I was terrified. Uh, I heart racing, feeling so nervous uh, as I walked down the stairs. And of course, there was some super helpful like year nine girls that stared at me like, what are you doing here? Uh, as only year nine girls have the ability to do. Um, and, and I kind of walked past them and I, so things were not going well. Um, and then I saw someone who had actually come to my school to be a student teacher. Uh, a PE teacher, which of course was something that I enjoyed doing. And he recognised me. And he was like, hang on, I know you. And he said my name, and he said, come on in. And at that moment, I felt welcome. I felt like this is a place where I could belong. And so I started going along regularly to that group. Uh, every Friday night I went, and over the, the period of about six to 12 months, I started hearing uh, about God. I heard the gospel. I heard that God had made me and that God loves me, but that I hadn't lived the way that God had wanted me to live, that I had taken control of my own life and I'd done whatever I thought was going to make me happy. And I looked at my life and I was like, check, definitely done that. Uh, and I learned that the desire to do this is something that the Bible actually calls sin. And that there's a consequence of sin. Uh, that the wages of sin is death. What you get, you deserve the wage of living a life in rejection and rebellion to God is death. But that verse doesn't end there. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life. That God loves me so much that he didn't want to leave me in that state. He didn't want to leave me in that place. That he actually sent his son into this world to take my punishment, to die for me so that he could offer me life forever. And so I made the decision as a 13 or 14 year old to live for Jesus, to accept his forgiveness, to accept his grace, his love, and to make my life about listening to and following him. I'd made my life about pursuing happiness, and I'd seen that that had worked out really poorly for me. And so I decided I would let Jesus determine how I would live. This is something that I, I still am seeking to do to this day. I want to be able to say, as Paul does, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the beautiful truth of the Christian life. That's what is extended to everyone here. While alive, we get to live the best life. What Jesus describes as a full, abundant life. Him, as the maker of all life, knows what's best for us. And he invites us to live his way that is full of joy and satisfaction and peace and comfort. It's the life that we were actually designed to live. For to me, to live is Christ. And not only 
Is that something that I pursue? It's actually what's best for me. But I know that if the very worst thing happens, if something terrible happens to me, my life is snuffed out. I get to go and be with God forever, which is better by far. It's the most amazing win-win situation, right? If you die, which people think is the ultimate terrible thing, it's a joy and a blessing because we get to be with God in his kingdom. What he describes, Jesus describes as paradise when he's speaking to the man next to him on the cross. That's what awaits us. And now we get to live the life which he's called us to, which he's designed for us, the full, abundant life. Today, I want to invite all of us to share this way of framing our lives, to give your life, your future to Jesus. It's my prayer that we all will be able to say that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen. Oh, yeah, like I got past school level, which was the, the, result, the desired result. Would you like to see some? got off track. <laughs>